Morality isn't about what you get, it's about what you are. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, how important is morality to a well-lived life? It depends what you mean by living well. Life is demanding enough. Who needs morality? Look, why should I be moral? I can profit a lot more if I'm not moral. How do you balance your own self-interest with the interests of morality? If everybody around you is being a sinner, are you allowed to sin too? I can't say I wouldn't be tempted. Our guest is Tamar Shapiro from Stanford University. But if you really take seriously the idea of acting on principle, you can both be yourself and be good. Recorded live on campus as part of the Stanford Continuing Study Series, The Art of Living. Ideally, you'll live a life that you find meaningful, you'll maintain your integrity, and you'll be a someone rather than just a plaything of social and psychological pressures. The Demands of Morality. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stanford University campus. This program is part of the Stanford Continuing Studies course, The Art of Living. Our thinking originates just a stone throw from here over at Philosopher's Corner on the main quad. That's where Ken and I usually hang out and do philosophy. Welcome everyone to Philosophy Talk and welcome to The Art of Living. Today, we're going to talk about the demands of morality. Our question is whether living morally adds or detracts from the goodness of a life. Well, John, isn't the answer to that obvious? When you do the moral thing, you're doing the right thing. Violating morality, well, that's doing the wrong thing. It's good to do the right thing, it's bad to do the wrong thing. So you will always do better and you will live better when you do the moral thing, John. Well, that was pretty obvious, but try out this scenario. Suppose you live in a country full of tax cheats. You're honest to the bone and you dutifully pay your taxes. What good does that do you? Does that make your life better? You're being moral, but it just makes you a saint among sinners. It makes you a sucker. How does that improve your life? Well, look, John, morality, think about it. Morality is partly about how people are to live together, right? So maybe, maybe morality doesn't require us to be absolutely honest when everybody else is being totally dishonest. Well, that's going to be kind of a slippery slope. How far down that slope are you willing to go? I mean, suppose you live in a country where people steal a lot. Is a little stealing okay? Morality going to sanction a little stealing? Or maybe a little random killing if you live in a violent neighborhood? If other people are into that, doing that sort of thing, oh, well. so you won't be a schmuck? Well, if you put it that way, I guess I... Well, so what's your bottom line? Are you going to cheat or not? Tell me. Um, um, I guess I, I, I'm torn. I admit, I'm torn. I, I don't claim to be a saint. I, I don't want to be a cheat, but I also I don't want to be a high-minded fool either. Well, and your devotion to morality has left you in a pretty pickle, hasn't it? You want morality to be your guide to life, but it's not giving you any guidance when things get difficult, is it? Well, that's because your scenario is morally screwy. Fortunately, we aren't always confronted with such screwed-up options. Well, morality isn't much of a guide if it only helps when you don't need a guide, when things aren't morally screwy. Look about it rationally in terms of costs and benefits. A moral life can have its benefits. Maybe you get praise from other people, you feel good, but it also has its costs. 
when you weigh up the cost of living morally against the benefits of a little immorality now and then, the moral life seems to often come out on the short end. Yeah, but, but, you, but that's the wrong way to think about it. You're thinking about it in the wrong way. Morality is its own reward. It has a hold on us. It goes way beyond the kind of cost-benefit analysis you're thinking. It's not like buying a car. Well, Ken, that's, that's, I'm sure that's exactly what you, they taught you at, at Notre Dame. But uh, let's try a little thought experiment to, to test out your hypothesis. So I've got this magical ring, and I'm going to give it to you. Only you will know about it. Only you can use it. Whenever you wear it, you'll be invisible. You'll be completely undetectable. You won't need deodorant. You won't leave footprints. When you've got that on and you choose to be invisible, you're absolutely free to do whatever you want. Nobody's going to catch you. Nobody's going to blame you. There, nobody's going to know you did anything wrong. Now, I know you've got a great reputation for moral uprightness, but I, I think you probably have some things you'd like to do while you're invisible. Uh, you can do them without sullying your impeccable reputation. Are you going to take my ring? Are you going to use it to satisfy your most secret, most forbidden desires? Or are you going to refuse it? Oh, John, you stole that thought experiment from Plato. You didn't think that up. Well, he won't miss it. And you have not answered my question. Uh, and Plato was trying to make my point. He wasn't trying to make your point. He thought that however much more immorality may appear to benefit you, and morality might appear to burden you, it's always better. It's intrinsically better. It's immeasurably better. It's better for you to do the moral things, John. So Plato would turn down the ring and use some big words like intrinsically. But wh what's the real story here? Some misguided idea of moral perfection? He wants to win the favors of others? Win the favors of his Greek gods? Or maybe he's just a coward? Well, no, John, it's not anything like that. It's out of concern for his own soul and his own well-being. You, you know that old saying. It profits a man nothing to gain the world but lose his soul. And I agree with Plato. Well, you, you sound like a pompous, pious Pollyanna of a Platonistic persuasion to me. <laughs> And you, you sound like a grouchy old nasty Nietzsche, and that's what you sound like. Nietzsche dismisses morality as a herd instinct, and he says that only weaker natures allow themselves to be governed by morality. Is that what you really believe? Come on. Not quite. Wouldn't go that far. But I'm just saying it's not obvious that living well requires that we always do what morality commands. There are a lot of other factors that go into a well-lived life than just morality alone. You know, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers. There's a lot to think about here. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, to talk to people who confronted some stark choices in their own lives about what it takes to live well. She files this report. The steroids era in Major League Baseball. Tonight, Barry Bond zeroing in on 71. The baseball star's trial over steroid use ended yesterday, and he's been found guilty of at least one crime. 762 home runs, more than anyone else ever in the history of baseball. Did you vote for him to join the Hall of Fame? Home runs were going up. Um, guys were getting physically stronger. Pitchers were throwing harder. You know, you could definitely tell that players were using steroids. Eric Knott was a pitcher in the peak of the steroids era. He says he watched players transform around him, and one of the toughest decisions he's ever had to make was whether to join them. It wasn't against the rules of baseball at that time. You know, you had to make a choice. You know, do you think you need to take steroids to, to get to the big leagues or to make more money, or 
You know, are you going to be one of the guys that, you know, trust your own abilities? Eric pitched in the minor leagues for 11 years, starting in the late 90s. He also played for the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Montreal Expos, the L.A. Dodgers, even a team in Mexico. He says baseball was it for him. I was four years, you know, four or five years old in T-ball, and that's all I ever wanted to do was be a baseball player. But the schedule was grueling. In the minors, you play 140 games in 155 days. Minus travel, you really only get about five days off a season. It wears you down. You know, it's just a grind on the body. It's a grind mentally. That's why the use of stimulants was so prevalent. And Eric was no exception. He remembers popping amphetamine pills called greenies before games to help him stay focused and alert. He says everyone was doing it. You know, we had a doubleheader day game in Omaha where the trainer put greenies in the coffee, you know, had one pot labeled with them and one pot without them. Eric says he saw stimulants as a way to get through the season, not as a way to improve his performance. Then came steroids. Players were coming back to spring training completely altered. They hit the ball farther. They didn't fatigue. Their stamina was better. Their endurance was better. Their ability to train longer. Back then, he says steroids were discussed freely. Players shared tips in the clubhouse. When he was in El Paso playing in the Texas League, Eric says the club manager would take steroid orders, travel across the border to Juarez, then come back and sell them to the opposing team. Eric could easily have taken performance-enhancing drugs. I made the choice to to not take them, um, partly because I was scared, you know, scared of the health effects, uh, scared what my wife would think. You know, I didn't want to come home labeled as a cheat if I ever got caught. Eric says he was never one of the best players, but he came really close to having a full career in the majors. Instead, he threw a respectable but short-lived combined 24 innings. And in 2008, when his career ended, Eric didn't plan for life after baseball. You know, being around a group of guys, taking bus trips together, I, I missed all that stuff and, you know, I still miss, you know, not the game so much, but just the camaraderie. You know, when you're, when you're doing it, you're special. You know, the 10,000 people in the stands want to do what you're doing. These days, Eric lives in Sebring, Florida with his wife and two kids. He works in construction. He says he finds himself imagining what could have been if he'd taken steroids like so many of his teammates and added some speed to his fastball. You know, if I did, who knows, maybe i blow out my elbow sooner, or maybe I do go and play four or five years in the big leagues and have that, you know, that cushion of financial security that I wish I had now. But for better or for worse, Eric feels he made the right decision. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Well, Ken, Caitlin's, uh, Caitlin's speech brought about memories. Uh, if I had been willing to take mind-altering drugs, I, I, I could have been in comp lit. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a moral kind of guy. I had to settle for philosophy. I'm John Perry, along with my fellow philosopher at Stanford, Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stanford campus. Our guest today is a professor of philosophy here at Stanford who's written many things on the topic of ethics and motivation. Please welcome Tamar Shapiro. Tamar, your work is in ethics. Now, the Greeks kind of started the study of ethics, and they saw it as both a theoretical subject and as a way of becoming a better person. 
hardly anyone makes the claim that the kind of stuff Ken and I do, the philosophy of language, will make you a better person. But maybe they still make it about ethics. So I'm going to ask you, what draws you personally to the study of ethics? Is it mainly a matter of intellectual curiosity? Or are you driven by a desire for self-improvement? Uh, in my case, it's really both, I think. I think I started out uh, being quite sensitive to, I think, the moral dimension of life. Uh, my parents were very respectful towards me, and I think they taught me ethics not by teaching me rules, but just by respecting me. And I noticed that a lot of my friends' parents didn't respect them as much, and I think that was very salient to me. And then I also have a very, um, I think, analytical mind. So I started out doing philosophy and math, and then dropped the math because it didn't have enough to do with life. So philosophy allowed me to think more rigorously about something I cared about, ethics. Well, that's a good answer. And, and now we're going to get into the meat of things, and I'm going to put the same question to you I put to Ken earlier. I'm going to give you this magical ring that will enable you to act Im immorally with impunity. Now, I, I doubt if you've ever had too many immoral desires, but, but maybe there was a book on reserve at the library that would have <laughs> liked to take home, right? Or, or, or an extra meatball at dinner, you know, dig, God <laughs> dig deep into, your, into, your, into the dark corners of your immoral self and tell me, wouldn't you want to take the ring and use it? I can't say I wouldn't be tempted. Okay. Uh, are you asking me, uh, do I think it would be the right thing to take the ring or would, do I think I would take the ring? Uh, you can answer both. Okay. <laughs> I hesitate to predict what I would in fact do because I think it's really hard to predict how we will act under stress. I think a lot of us like to think we have better characters than we actually do. Um, I think it would be right not to play with that ring. Um, <laughs> but Tamar, Tamar, this thought experiment of John, as I said before, he stole it from Plato. And he stole it from Plato because the two... Well, I was wearing the ring though, yeah, so I mean, no. he, he, he didn't know Plato it. Said, Nobody is ever willingly moral. They're always willing under the pressure of their reputation and getting caught and, and then Ring is supposed to say, relieve that pressure, nobody will be moral. I guess you don't believe that. Well, ideally I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of people probably are only moral because they're pressured into it. But the question is, ideally, can we give some kind of philosophical basis for being moral that doesn't just appeal to pressure. Right, right. And Plato is supposed to say, yes, we can, but I don't know how that's supposed to work. Yeah. Briefly, can you tell me how that's supposed to work? <laughs> I think the main thing is to um, draw a distinction between principle and pressure. So I think um, when you focus not so much on whether you're doing what others want you to do or whether you're doing what you want to do, but focus on whether you're being pressured into it or whether you're acting on principle. Um, uh, there are some who argue that if you really take seriously the idea of acting on principle, you can both be yourself and be good, and these amount to the same thing. Be yourself and be good. That would be a nice thing. I'd like to be myself and be good. <laughs> this is Philosophy Talk, coming to you from the Stanford campus. We're talking about the demands of morality with Tamar Shapiro, our colleague from Stanford University. Does living well require that you live morally? Is living morally all on its own enough to guarantee that you have lived well? Or can morality just sometimes be sort of a straight jacket that makes life less satisfying than it would be without it? Morality, fundamental building block of any well-lived life or a debilitating straitjacket. Along with questions from our audience,
when philosophy talk continues. He'll chop you all up with his hatchet and scatter you for your own good. The people below, they never will know what was lost to us there in the woods. Thanks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> To our musical guests, the Playtones. This is Philosophy Talk, and I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Stanford philosopher Tamar Shapiro, and we're talking about the demands of morality. What if you were offered Plato's magic ring? Would you still feel the pull of morality, even though it empowered you to act immoral immorally with complete freedom? What about when everybody goes around being immoral? Does immorality still guide and govern us then, even though it makes losers out of us? Join the discussion by stepping up to the microphone in front of the stage. So, so Tamar, let's, I'm going to grant, at least for the sake of argument, that it's pretty hard, maybe not impossible, but pretty hard, to live well if you're totally out of sync with morality, totally out of sync. But do you think the converse is true, that if you simply live morally, you will automatically have lived well. Is, is that true or not true? It depends what you mean by living well. Um, well, okay, tell me what. Uh, ideally, you'll live a life that you find meaningful, you'll maintain your integrity, and you'll be a someone rather than just a plaything of social and psychological pressures. Um, on the other hand, a lot of misfortune may befall you nevertheless. You may you know, live a great life while you know, marching into the crematoria. Oh, you said something. You'll be a someone rather than a stew. <laughs> what did you say? That was a nice phrase. But rather than a plaything of social and psychological forces. So you, it sounds like you think that more, some people, some philosophers think, Nietzsche thinks, and that Ring of Gaiji's challenge, I think, is about whether, whether morality comes as it were from the inside, from the ground floor of your being, or is this something imposed on you? Sounds like you think that morality is what makes you a self in the first place. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think that's the only kind of argument that can really answer someone like Nietzsche. Let me, let me try a, an intermediate position. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's Plato on the one hand and Nietzsche on the other, but in between isn't there kind of Hume? Uh, I think Hume would say, well, if you're well brought up, you, you won't take the Ring of Gyges, or at least you'll limit what you do with the Ring of Gyges. I mean, we all on the internet have a little ring of gyges because we can do immoral stuff with nobody knowing, right? The poor princess of, of Britain, you know, drops her underwear and somebody gets a picture of it. It's immoral to look at that, I think, but no one will ever know. Uh, but I'll know, and I'd feel bad because I, I would think of my sainted mother and what she would say and my sainted grandmother and what she would say. So I don't look or take only a short look. <laughs> But humans say, absent that upbringing that gives you an internal desire not to do things that you were taught you shouldn't do, if you weren't brought up right, you really have no reason. Reason could never convince you not to take that look. Is, is that close to your position? Not really, because I don't think Hume would really answer the Nietzschean challenge. I mean, because... Nietzsche could say, yes, I agree, if you aren't really brought up, then you're not likely to do what the herd does. But that 
you know, it doesn't give you any reason um, uh, to question what the herd does, say. And um, I think Hume does a good job of sort of describing uh, the way a lot of people are brought up and the moral feelings a lot of people have, but he doesn't really provide an answer to, well, you know, why, once I reflect on my good upbringing, why should I continue to act as I'm inclined to act, given that upbringing? So, to my, I really I want to hear more about this claim of yours, that morality is the thing that makes me have a self at all, to be, I mean, how, I mean tell me more about how that works. Well, That's, I mean, you start off with the thought that, um, you know, the first pass reply to the amoralist is something like, look. The amoralist is the, whom? The person who's um, saying, look, why should I be moral? I can profit a lot more yeah. if I'm not moral. Um, you say, look, morality isn't about um, uh, what you get. It's about what you are, who you are. And who you are is sort of more fundamental than what you get. And you might think, well, who I am in what sense? I can't just say, well, it's about who I am because I'll be a bad person and have a bad conscience if I don't do the moral thing because that just presupposes I already care about morality. And we're wondering why. So the thought is that, well, something more fundamental um, is that I actually have a self in the first place. Um, now, it may seem that it's automatic that we all have selves in the first place, uh, but it's also sort of natural to think of a self as something you work on and something you create. Right, definitely. I definitely agree with that. Because I, I say to students, you know, I teach this course called The, the Art of Living. You know, why is there an art of living? Why is there? Because a human life is not given to you something already fixed and determined. It's something you have to say. Well, who am I? You have to answer that question. You have to try to live by that by the answer you give yourself. But I want to sort of expand on your thought. There's a philosopher of religion, Richard Swinburne, who said, who, you said you could live in a crematorium. You could live your life in a crematorium. He said, he said look, suppose you're a Jew, you're in Hitler's concentration camp, you're going to march in the crematorium. I, 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 that would make me lose my faith. I said to him, what, is, what am I supposed to say when I meet my maker and say, you allowed Hitler? You know what he said? He said, you should thank him. You should thank your maker. So why should you thank your maker? Because he gave you an opportunity to show what you really are, to show your true self, that you held up with dignity, that you resisted to the end, and, and that's more important than the outcome. So in some sense, I'm kind of agreeing with you. Morality isn't about what you get, right? It's about who you are, how you live. I mean, is that a, compa a sympathetic thought? That's what thought? morality is about. It could be that, though, we can distinguish between better and worse lives all around, and that um, uh, two equally moral people might have better, end up with better and worse lives. And I would argue that the life in the concentration camp is a worse life all around, all things considered. But, but, but let's, let's go back to <coughs> our baseball player that we heard interviewed. Let's suppose he had an identical twin, right? But somehow the identical twin, I don't know, had a hearing problem. He didn't, he didn't get infused with the same morality. But they both had talent. The one built his self around being a baseball player with good morals. The other one built his self about being a good, successful baseball player, full stop, simpliciter, morals, schmorals. Now, I, I think they can both have a self. They can both have an integrated identity across time. They can both have intentions and plans that they work out, memories that they have of their past decisions, a continuing personal identity. One of them ends up rich and with a bubblegum card with his face on it and money in the bank and, and our roving philosophic reporter interviews him and says, but don't you feel bad that you took those steroids? And he says, no. No, never occurred to me to feel bad. I know my brother feels bad. I just don't get that. I, I don't know. 
Maybe I'm missing something, but I'm sure glad I'm missing it. Now, why isn't it just straightforward that the, the guy with no morals is better off? Now, that's well, not saying that the guy with morals would have been better off to take the drugs because he would have haunted him because he was brought up properly. But if he wasn't brought up properly, isn't he just better off? So morality right. is kind of completely contingent. Depends right. on your grandmother. And, and, and you're suggesting, you know, better off by the criteria I was yeah. hand-waving at, which is yeah. that doesn't he have as much of a self as the person yeah. who... Yeah. But um, you're you're, uh, you're going to say, well, yeah, it better off in terms of what he gets, but not in terms of what he is. Well, but I thought you What's were that? I what thought you mean? were making the the, yeah. the proper move. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I'm giving you credit here. I thought you were making the proper <laughs> move of of saying uh, tomorrow. In what sense does the uh, baseball player who's created his identity yeah. around baseball at any cost is any less of a self right, than right, the baseball right, player yeah. who's created his identity around baseball only within the rules? So that's the smart thing you thought I was saying, and come to think of it, yeah. that's what I was saying. <laughs> and what's your answer to John? <laughs> We're, we're, we're I, this is the hardest part. I'm, I'm pointing in the direction of the arguments that I think ideally are most persuasive. I'm not necessarily in a soundbite going to be able to make a full account. Um, but one idea is, uh, uh, one of Kant's ideas is that um, if the self you're making um, uh, requires that you make an exception of yourself, Say the self you're making is the self who has the ring of Gyges and mm -hmm. walking around with the ring of Gyges, you know, taking steroids, <laughs> etc. Um, uh, in making an exception of yourself, Kant would say, um, you're not really acting on a principle as opposed to pressure. You're, you're really just giving in to the pressure of your inclinations um, because it's as if you are saying at once, this is the rule we should live by, don't take steroids. And this is a rule we should live by, take steroids. Yeah, and, so and you're saying both at the same time. Or take, and there's a way in which you're not really taking a stand for either one, because you're kind of so, doing so, both. So, if, just, so, so our baseball player, you might say to him, look, you took steroids and so you did better. But what if everybody had taken steroids? Mm -hmm. Then you'd, you'd all be, you know, you'd all have blown elbows and shriveled but, up private parts. But, uh, and yeah, and but you, you wouldn't be any better off. So could you, you yeah, can't really say the principal acted on as the one everyone could have acted on. Yeah, that's that right. Idea? That's what Kant that's would say. That's what Tamar would say. But the guy would say, that's why I took it with the ring of guidance, guy. <laughs> but you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing the demands of morality in front of a live audience at Stanford University. And we have a question from that live audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. My name is Amir Vine, and I'm from Redwood City, California. My challenge um, linking morality and life well lived is gets us in the business of defining absolute morality, which, which is a hard thing to do. And if I think about, from my viewpoint, um, eliminating hypocrisy, if, if one was to link life well lived to that, and you hinted to principle living, then we get out of the absolute morality business. And if we were to think of morality only as rules of the game, rather than you should do this, limit morality to what you should not do, and let these herds with common rules establish themselves and individuals to go find the herd that is closest to their rules of the game that they truly believe in. Because that ring does not hide you from yourself. And, and that's my problem with the ring. I, I, while I'm invisible to everyone, I'm not invisible to myself. 
And eliminating conflict to me seems like a life I lived. I just wanted uh, your comments on that. What do you think, Tamar? Um, uh, it's a good point that the ring doesn't hide you from yourself. Um, but I think John would say, yeah, and if you've been well brought up, you're going to be ashamed of how you look when you see yourself. But if you're not well brought up, or you're not brought up in that particular way, then you're not even going to be ashamed. So, and, big and deal. And Nietzsche would say to you, look, you've got, it doesn't hide you from yourself. That's the voice of conscience speaking. Mm -hmm. But he has this lovely passage in the Gay Science, a great book, about there are so many ways to listen to your conscience. You can listen as a, a soldier who obeys a command. You can listen as a lover who quarrels with your conscience. And the way you listen to your conscience is contingent upon how you've been conditioned to listen to your conscience. But what you should do is free yourself from this voice and just be. But we've got more questions from our live audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Hi, my name is Alex and I'm from Mountain View, California. Um, and you started off the show kind of asking Professor Shapiro uh, why she studies moral philosophy, whether it was out of interest or because she wants to be a better person. Um, and I was wondering whether or not uh, people who think about these things, moral philosophy, if that actually does, in general, assist them in being better people. Uh, because there's a lot of people that maybe won't think much about what they're doing, but they do plenty of good things and vice versa. There's, there's a certain lore around philosophy departments that the most conniving, backbiting, <laughs> underhanded people when it comes to political decisions that uh, uh, philosophy departments have to make are the ethicists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just reporting gossip I've heard to Mark, and you know, I'm, she's confess, an exception. Never heard that about her. <laughs> we are very adept at rationalization. Yes. <laughs> it's our professional skill. Yeah, you might think it's wrong to, uh, but, to but, tear up these ballots, but there's a higher good here. Yeah. But, but look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak about Ephesus versus any other, but the, the, let's call it the ethical life, living the ethical life, living reflectively, thinking... What professional philosophers do is think really hard about these questions that are questions for us all. And they not only think about the questions in a first order way, they think about thinking about those questions. And, but the ethical life, living the ethical life, undertaking to guide and govern your life by considerations that are ethical, that's a problem for everybody. It's something one ought to do, but let's think another right, question. Let me just, I, I, I don't owe an apology, because there are people like Peter Singer and John Rawls that are great ethical philosophers and are well known as virtual saints. And they not, only, they not only write the right and talk the talk, they walk the walk. That's but I've never been at a department meeting with either of them. <laughs> Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Thank you. I'm Ken Lowney um, from Oakland. And perhaps you can help me with a, with a very modest quandary. Um, that is, has to do with being spare changed. Um, so sometimes I give money when asked because I think it's the right good thing to do. Sometimes I don't give money when asked because I've, maybe I've just read the Wall Street Journal or I think we should all you know, support ourselves. And sometimes when I give money, um, I see that person again and they haven't done what they said they were going to do with the money. Or I go and buy, say, oh, let me go and get you some food. I come back and they're not there. They've left. They've gone somewhere. Um, so it seems like there's, there's a lot of moving parts on my side and on their side. And I wonder if you could perhaps help me with developing a policy. Of, of, uh, well, well I, ha I have a policy. I, there's a guy at my gas station showed up once, and he said he, he and his daughter were trying to get back to Sacramento, and they ran out of gas. Could I have 10 bucks for gas? I gave him 10 bucks for gas. Two weeks later, the same thing happened to him. You know? <laughs> and I said, I'm not giving you 10 bucks again. You, you shouldn't drive this far from Sacramento if you're going to run out of gas. So that's my policy. 
you know, bit once it's your fault, bit, bit never mind. <laughs> I, I used to have a policy about this when I lived in uh, D.C. And, the, and there were homeless people all over the place. I would, give, I would carry a certain amount of money and I would give it until uh, it ran out. And I didn't care what people did with it because I, I thought the following, that it's important for that person who's begging on the street, which is a degrading thing to have to do, to be recognized as seen as a fellow human being. Whatever else they do with it, your recognition and seeing them, rather than scolding them and hectoring them, your recognition and seeing them is a moral good. So I used to just give money, and I wouldn't care if they went out. Okay, but bond. now let's go back to, to an example, which I will create of ex nihilo, somebody who drinks $75 bottles of wine. <laughs> uh, how much, how much of, of that 75 should he shave off in order to have enough change, right? Should he drink a $50 bottle of wine and have 15 bucks to disperse? Should he drink two buck chuck and have $73 that to disperse? That must be a question for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, you have a view about that? Uh, no specific number. I think it, we should come to some consensus about just how out of whack the social world is or not. I mean, if we think the social world is pretty out of whack and that inequalities are, are really grave and it's a rather emergency situation, um, then we should all agree to make big sacrifices. But not everybody may share that view. People may think, no, nope, we're actually doing pretty well. Then you should give them a copy of Ayn Rand. Yeah. You're, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. This time we're talking about the demands of morality with Tamar Shapiro from Stanford University. Some people give their all to morality. These are moral saints and moral perfectionists. But if we are to live well, does morality demand this of all of us, that we all be saints? We're coming to you from the Stanford University campus. We'll take more questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Thanks to our musical guests, the Playtones. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Tamar Shapiro from Stanford University, and we're talking about the demands of morality. Tamar, let's shift our focus a little bit. Suppose I'm a morally decent person, the kind not at all tempted by Plato's magic ring. But I'm no saint either. I care about morality. But I care about other things too. Fine music, leisurely dinners, strolls on the beach. I wouldn't do anything immoral to get those things, but I also wouldn't go above and beyond the call of duty to make the world a better place if it meant giving up on the finer pleasures in life. I'm not just going to devote my life to doing good things and not have time to walk on the beach, devote all my money to charity and not have any wine or champagne. What does that make me on your view? A schmuck? No, you're not a schmuck, oh, John. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they're the things that make life worth living, and they, they help tell us what an ideal world is. An ideal world is a world where everyone can enjoy all of those good things. But no, I don't think that morality requires you to give everything up. We have limited domains of responsibility, 
and um, because we each have lives to lead. And I think, uh, uh, even though I think we probably should all be sacrificing a lot more than we're sacrificing now, but that, that doesn't mean that there's no limits in our responsibility. Wait a minute, but she, I mean, compare John, who, okay, I, he's not a schmuck, <laughs> but he's definitely not a saint. Compare John to the person who says, okay, I'll give up the wine, I'll give up the walks along the beach, and I am going to devote my life to the moral amelioration of the world. Which is better? Who has lived better? John or, or the other person? So if you want to take morality as your guide, it seems to me the morality says, I mean, unless you just say, well, that doesn't really matter. But no, you, I think, I assume God, John thinks, no, that, that really matters. He really admires the person who, who gives up the fine wine. It's just wine, the fine wine means more to him than relieving the suffering of this, where, where he could relieve the suffering. Why isn't he a schmuck? Well, I, <laughs> I think morality involves not just a relation to other people, but a relation to yourself, too. And um, you have to... Uh, live in a principled way with respect to yourself as well as with respect to others. And that doesn't necessarily involve giving in to various inclinations for other goods, but it can involve giving those inclinations a hearing, and if they have some claim, actually satisfying them. Um, so I think if you're mutilating yourself for the sake of other people, that can't be part of a good life. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Pam. Thank you. I'm Mary Busman. I'm from Palo Alto, California. And um, I'm very touched by what you're talking about tonight. And I was, I've been wondering about morality. What is it? What is it? I grew up Catholic. Um, I have a strong moral sense from the code in which I, I grew up. But um, I'm an educator now, and I'm thinking about educating children and, and that responsibility that comes with that. And I was thinking about um, the overarching goal of morality. And I, I think it's very challenging and very complex. And I guess if I were to explain this to one of my students or help them try to understand how to live a good life, what does it take, how to be responsible, I think I would break it up, but I, I'm, I'm wondering your opinion about this too. Um, I started thinking about, well, when you think about how you treat others, whether you're going to be a Hitler and destroy Jews, um, where was the empathy, and how is that related to morality? Um, when you think about how you treat yourself, um, and how is that related to optimism and the hope you have in the world? And I think somehow just those two principles really helped me to think about um, a life well lived because if with just those two and, and I'm, I'm making it very simplistic but if you had just those two um, wouldn't that bring joy to you and if you have joy wouldn't that ultimately lead to love and wouldn't that be a life well lived so just a question for you thanks <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, love's a great topic. Um, I, I think um, empathy is really important, but I th empathy is really the product of uh, an activity of empathizing. You empathize with someone, and then you have empathy for them. And the question is, you know, what, what makes it important for us to empathize with other people? And I think to empathize with ourselves. Um, you know, I think 
leading a moral life involves valuing yourself and others in such a way that you feel called upon to empathize with both. Welcome to Velocity Talks, sir. Chandra Kumar from Menlo Park, California. If the final judge of my morality is me, because I can't hide, my, hide from myself, as someone said earlier, and you all agreed, then it's my line on a zone or on a line from white to black, wherever I draw that line is what I get comfortable with. And now that line, we are talking of two polar opposites, evil and good, or just and unjust morality and immorality, as if they are white and black. But in actuality, it's a gray line, and every person for himself or herself decides that line. The line moves with a number of things, whether you are Catholic or Protestant, whether you are Hindu or Muslim, whether you grew up in India, Africa, or here, or, or whatever else involved, or what times you live in. Only 50 years ago, the morning after pill would have been considered immoral, and so on, abortion, uh, women's voting rights, whatever else, or slavery. So many things were morally right and acceptable, but they are getting acceptable now. So the point is, with change, we move our line, and wherever I draw my line is my point, is where I am living a good life and a morally right life. There's a lot of stuff in what you said. There's some things I want to challenge. So there's a view that you could have about moral difference and moral change over time, that it's mere change. It's just, as Hume would put it, one darn thing after another in the sphere of morality. There's another view that you could have. There's such a thing as moral progress, right? And so there's a kind of moral truth or something that we're getting at over time. And so people were wrong to oppress blacks and enslave, uh, oppress women and enslave blacks and genocide. That's all wrong. And we gradually improve the world. And one of the ways we improve the world is through our moral agency. So I'm not sure I agree with you. It's just, well, I draw my line here, I draw my line there. Part of me is drawn to that view because I think morality is somehow rooted in our self-constitution, but another part of me says, no, nah, there's got to be some, you know, a pull toward the moral truth. What, what do you think about that? Uh, I don't think it's all just lines determined by conventions, um, but I do think there's a kind of line drawing that we all have to be very honest with ourselves about, which is when, you know, when we try to rationalize and make exceptions for ourselves, which we do all the time. And there we might, we might use this insight about, well, there are gray areas, blah, blah, to try to justify really cutting corners in ways that uh, we know are wrong. And that I think we have to worry about that. But does, does, does your approach leave room for kind of moral relativism or does it, I mean, or is it neutral about that or? Uh, probably, I'm not sure. Probably it leaves room for um, cultural, uh, culture to make a contribution in the details. Um, but the, the broad outlines are sort of, you know, whatever you do, do it in a cooperative manner. Something like that. Well, I was just gonna say that, but wherever you draw the line, whether you think there's one line for everybody or different lines for different cultures, Wherever you draw the line, then there's the question is, will I live better if I live within the line I've drawn? Or does it not really matter? That's the line. It's immoral if I do that, but it might help my life. So our question, in a way, is independent of that question. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Hi, my name is Peter Wood. I'm from Santa Cruz, California. Um, and I just, um, for the sake of argument, and this is for all three of you, if I just posit the idea that if moral morality exists to help with the order of society. If we say that's the case from 
day one of whenever day one was, then what does, and this I guess goes more to what um, Professor Shapiro was saying, where does principle fit into that? Um, as in what Plato was talking about as the, as the good. Um, like where does that come from? And if you juxtapose it to, no, morality is necessary, it's useful so that we have order from the beginning of time. Yeah, that's a really uh, deep question you've asked. You asked, is morality just sort of an instrument we use to fulfill certain prior defined ends like living peacefully together? Or is there something deeper in virtue of which we value it in itself? Um, so Kant thought that there is a kind of limit on what you can do sort of consistently without um, uh, just being a plaything of, of pressure. And he thought if you're always asking yourself, what if everybody did that? Then you're getting in not just the right relation to other people, but the right relation to yourself, such that you are a someone rather than just a plaything of forces. But it's a, a long story to really fill that out. Well, on, on, that, on that note, tomorrow we're going to have to draw this to a close. This has been a really fascinating, fascinating conversation. I wish we could go on. Our guest has been Tamar Shapiro from Stanford University. Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. This conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out much more by visiting our very active Facebook page. Now we make a morally unambiguous choice for speed with Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes. I grew up in a fairly live-and-let-live family, so most of the so-called sins were not much in play in my household. As far as the demands of morality go, my parents would get mad if I got too big for my britches, which I guess would be the sin of pride. We weren't much on coveting anything the neighbors had, and anger was scarce, so my mother was often grouchy. Laziness? Eh, forget about it. Lust? <laughs> I don't think so, pal. Gluttony? Well, maybe at Thanksgiving, but even then it was mainly all about the leftovers. Looking back, what were the main vices and sins? What was taking food off our table, or threatening to? Communism, whatever that meant. Some of my mother's people were worried about black people, though where in their little South Dakota town they would find any, I don't know. Others worried about Jews, who apparently had some kind of sinister hold on the South Dakota banks. The family's random racist feelings generally took the form of drunken blurts between hands of pinochle. There was never any call to action. We went to church, but weren't very religious. Drinking, smoking, gambling, or at least card playing were necessary components to any family gathering. Nobody in my family thought about homosexuality at all, I don't think. Now, sure, my cousins and I made homophobic jokes. I believe the making of homophobic jokes was one of the main requirements in the 12-year-old Midwestern boy handbook, even gay Midwestern boys. I suppose there's a certain amount of resentment as we grew into adulthood and actually met actual gay people that we could no longer make our lispy, limp-wristed jokes because they were hurtful and, well, not funny. But we also came to realize that unlike drinkers, smokers, sex addicts, gamblers, and the like, gay people were gay not because of a lifestyle choice, or a personality disorder, it was just a fact of life, like being white, left-handed, or from Zimbabwe. I've come to understand gay objections to gay marriage more than straight objections to gay marriage. The gay objection seems to be, hey, we're outsiders, why should we adopt this cultural tradition that doesn't want us, in the hope that heterosexuals who hate and fear us will give us the big hug that we don't really want? I understand that objection. It has both bitterness and resentment, which should really be at the heart of any belief. What is the straight objection to gay marriage? Well, it makes a mockery of straight marriage. Okay, like divorce or what? 
Marriage is sacred and gay people aren't. Well, marriage isn't necessarily sacred if you get married by a justice of the peace, is it? And since when is it the government's business to decide what's sacred? Anyway, marriage or not, it's obvious that homosexuality as a vice no longer cuts it. And we can eliminate much more prejudice in our time, in my opinion, by the simple expedient of eliminating alcoholic beverages from pinochle games. Write your congressman now. <laughs> Tell him Ian sent you. I gotta go. <laughs> Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demaris. Music from Merle Kessler and Joshua Aru Brody, the Playtones. Special thanks to Liz Frith and Azin Masudi. Thanks also to Dan Brandon, Caitlin Esch, and Dave Millar. Crystal Nickerson, Nabila Abdullah, and Or Gazal. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich, Laura McGuire is our Director of Research. Dave Millar is our Director of Marketing. Carollo Kreitmar is our Performance Consultant. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and from the members of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Thinking.